Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Regenerative by Design podcast, where we will be getting to the root of health, climate, economics, and food. I am your host, Joni Kinwell-Moore. I'm an RN, an ethnobotanist, and the founder of Snacktivist Foods. Join me on this journey as we explore the ideas, stories, and personalities behind the regenerative food system movement. Food is the connection between people and planet. In a world where pandemics, climate change, and war have made us feel so disconnected and vulnerable, regenerative agriculture has become a powerful force for positive transformation and hope. Here, regenerative thought leaders share how agriculture and food design can create a more resilient system. All right. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for joining us today on the Regenerative by Design podcast. I have a guest today that I have been wanting to have on the show for since we started recording, because every time I talk to Mr. David Lee Zacks, I have a million questions for him. And he has such a fantastic background when it comes to regenerative food systems, regenerative farming, and how that all impacts health. So welcome, David. Thank you so much for having me. I got a million answers for you. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited. We're going to have to stay focused here because I'm sure we could really go down several rabbit holes during this recording. So, you know, I'm just glad that you took time out of your day to join us to have this conversation. There are so many important topics at large today, and especially with what's going on in the world, I feel like there is a new spotlight being shown on food systems, food system resiliency, agriculture, and then, of course, the health effects of um, food and diet on humans. So I think you've got an awesome background to talk about these topics. And if you wouldn't mind just taking a second and telling us about your background, you are a PhD, you have master's degree in very fascinating things having to do with sustainability, impact, and food systems. So if you could just take a moment and tell us about your story and where you grew up, that'd be awesome. Sure. Uh, so I grew up in in uh, Metro Detroit, uh, not really involved in agriculture, but I ate a, a good home-cooked meal nearly every day for my, for my mom and, um, you know, spent a lot of time outdoors, uh, in nature, camping, um, exploring. And when I went into college, that's kind of where I guess I had to pick something. And I started with computer science and that didn't go very far. And, and, but really mm-hmm. kind of my heart being around the environment and environment quickly, uh, you know, the, the passions around the environment quickly, uh, transitioned to passions around food. Um, and got uh, my bachelor's of science from Michigan State University and then went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, where I got my both my um, master's and PhD uh, and really focused at that space between how the, um, how the way we steward our planet, especially in, in relationship to how we feed ourselves and what that how that impacts ourselves, how it impacts the world in which in which we live, and uh, and and what we're going to do about it. Uh, most importantly, uh, and so that's mm-hmm. kind of where I, I took the road down. You know, w- what does sustainability mean? And is that I think that's a, that was a good thing, right? Uh, but what does that mean in practice? What does it mean in terms? You know, its relationship as I kind of you know went further down the road after. Uh, after getting out of grad school and looking at the different levers that that could be pulled to help um, shift the way that uh, that that you know, we farm, that we eat, 
um, and really getting into looking at how capital moves and the role of um, the role of capital and finance and investment and all these tools that we have that are supporting one kind of agriculture in, in, in a um, uh, rel you know in a relatively large scale and looking at ways that we can use capital in in different ways uh, in different ways as it relates to the people the communities the natural resources that we have and ultimately the the outcomes for people and planet. Very cool. And you know one of the things that intrigued me about your academic background was that you did have a focus on what is called like you know quote unquote sustainable decision making. And I think it's interesting to isolate that as a concept because that plays so well into this regenerative by design thinking concept that I spend a lot of time thinking about where it's like, how do we have this intentionality where you kind of create a framework for thinking and decision making that pulls in all these different diverse topics from sustainability to regeneration, um, health to economics, and obviously the planet and impact on natural systems. Um, it's a complex picture. And like you said, decision-making is at the core of it because every decision we make every day influences all those different things. And I think that's why it's so overwhelming to people. Yeah. And coming from a, a natural science background um, and, you know, getting, you know, ultimately the, the PhD in environmental science, the, the, the rule book that I was presented with and I had to, to learn from was the you know, things like the laws of thermodynamics, laws and rules that the natural world lives by that um, are pretty hard to break. And you mm -hmm. compare that then with, you know, legal systems and social norms and other um, other decision making frameworks that are, you know, fundamentally human created and uh, in many cases, as, as we've seen through, you know, all the documentation of our planetary overshoot and all of the other ways in which in many cases we're, you know, wrecking ourselves and wrecking the planet, like those, those rules don't seem to, uh, be structured in a way that is going to keep, you know, you know, humans and the other inhabitants of earth, um, here mm -hmm. for the long term. So that's where my interest in, you know, biomimicry and ways that we can, kind of mimic nature and learn to live by, you know, these planetary boundaries that we have um, is the direction that we need to to move some of our, I think, our, our human-focused decision-making structures. Right, right. And, you know, it's interesting working in the world of regenerative food systems because unlike my previous careers, which I spent a decade and a half in healthcare and I spent about a decade in in sciences and in biology and chemistry and working more with academic nonprofits, et cetera, forest service. Um, I feel like in regenerative and in this world, like what the world you live in, finance and thinking about financial and micro all the way to macroeconomic impact is always part of this bigger decision-making piece. Where when I was in healthcare, I mean, finance is obviously an oppressive part of the healthcare system, but when you're actually a person working in healthcare, you never think about it. I mean, we called the ICU the medical bankruptcy unit for a reason, but beyond that, we had no idea what anything cost. And we definitely didn't think about the cost of, you know, behavior and decision-making and how that ultimately drives an overinflated, expensive healthcare system. And I just think it's really cool, the work that you're doing, how you you keep the hands on the kite strings, essentially, of finance and 
we pull all of this regenerative sustainability thinking into something that stays in check and always considers how it affects all of these different levers, as you will. (laughs) So I'd love for you to talk about like in terms of regenerative, you know, what work you're doing now and how it plays into that bigger system picture. Sure. So, uh, you know, again, you know, starting from an early part of the story uh, was really focused on the agriculture, the soil, the environmental aspects of this. Um, You know, the next step for me was, you know, understanding what some of these larger system drivers were, the finance and the economics. Um, And then I had an opportunity. I was selected as a fellow of what what is now the Just Economy Institute um, in 2018 to join 25 financial activists from around North America to really take some time and to be together in a community to think about the role of capital uh, and how it can be used to really advance social and environmental outcomes uh, through the use of that capital. And that's where, again, I was able to step away from some of my day-to-day responsibilities and the projects I was managing that were really focused on how do we get more and better capital to accelerate and advance a regenerative agriculture. Um, And I was, you know, I, I thought that we, especially from an environmental perspective that you know since earth day almost more than 50 years ago that we've been trying to look at the effects of uh what we're doing on the environment and that be the reason why we need to make a a change you know whether it's the rivers or the climate or uh biodiversity and we have all these reasons and all not to say that they're not important but they to me they hadn't seemed like it was whether it was resonating or it was not driving enough action and mm-hmm. you know i got to the point where i was like well human humans are 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 ultimately a relatively selfish species and i wonder if we were to reframe the ways in which we talk about agriculture and environment on you know direct impacts to human health and as it relates to food it becomes very direct mm-hmm. as we eat around three times a day maybe there's another way we can frame these issues and and you know think about our food systems as it relates directly to human health and as somebody who spent the time in the hospital and saw the direct and indirect impacts of our food system on human health you know i began to hear more and more stories that you know just got me to think about how you know what what future projects and and next steps could be in this area one of which was a, a paper we released last year with my colleague mandy ellerton on the regenerative agriculture and human health nexus insights from field to body, uh, really a page turner. Um, but you know, we, we it is yeah, actually, yeah. it's a really cool paper. Uh, we'll, we'll put a link. We will put a link in it. I've actually read it several times because it is, it's illuminating, you know, it really is. But we, what we wanted to do in that paper was connect some of the dots that we knew were out there. We knew that some of these connections had been made, but put them all in one place and, you know, for the reader, mm-hmm. whoever they may be, maybe they're a farmer, maybe they're an eater, maybe they're a, a healthcare professional, uh, to really work to say that these, these two areas of food and environment aren't, aren't really so far away after all. And we know that the way in which we manage our, our agro ecosystems, our agricultural, um, land and, and, and uh and other areas 
really has an effect on food quality. And that food quality has an effect mm-hmm. on our health and short-term and long-term health outcomes. Um, and yes, there's things that we don't understand. Yes, we're just beginning to understand you know, the microbiome of the soil, the microbiome of the human, uh, and the interactions between them. But we are getting to the point where we have a pretty clear understanding that there are some things that do harm to us and there are some things that uh, help to heal and help to nourish. And how, you know, then the questions, you know, it clearly become, well, how do we support those systems that heal and nourish? And how do we, how do we move away from some of those mm-hmm. other systems that we know are doing us, uh, you know, bodily and environmental harm? Right. And it is such a paradigm change because I think that most Americans have been trained to think about food in this really reductionistic, like good versus evil paradigm that is kind of set up to fail because it's like, oh, if you if you care about what you eat, you're going to be really restrictive and you're going to have like less satisfaction and enjoyment in life. You're going to be kind of puritanical in a way, you know, like the early Kellogg inspired turn of the century, like fanaticism in diet. And then if you're not that, then you just don't care and you just eat a bunch of garbage. And, and I think where the paradigm shift going into more of a regenerative food systems model that it's about what it's full of, not what it's free from that really makes all the difference. And so it's not really about demonizing any food group. It's not about demonizing, you know, are you vegan or are you not, you know, you're part of the problem depending on where you fall in that spectrum and, and really kind of looking at food as a, as a greater ecosystem and as humans, as a piece of that ecosystem and that we're driving certain models in the natural system based on our consumption patterns and just being intentional about that and putting quality back into the equation. And what we've really done is, is driven our, our food system in two places, one towards one that is low cost, uh, you know, for the consumer and the other one that is that you know we've driven we've driven really towards to increase quantity to increase the amount of food that we produce mm-hmm. and you know i, I uh, it, it is very clear that in that framing that it is that there is no free lunch is that if there is some kind of you know I, I refer to them, you know, or they are referred to as negative externalities, uh, things that are, you know, maybe unintended consequences that we might not expect, but yeah. are the, but, but we live in a, in a, um, in a, in a finite constrained world. And if we're moving towards, if we're, if we're, if we're selecting for low cost, high volume foods that don't have that, you know, quality that nutri- those nutritional aspects that our bodies need, then we do understand mm-hmm. that there's, there's actually a, a high cost to that. So something that might be cheap right. up front, we're understanding has a high cost later on. And uh, right. who pays for that? Is that the public? Is that personal? Is that companies who are helping mm-hmm. to ensure that we're realizing where the, where the fallacy in, in that kind of cheap food system really lies? Yeah, it's very expensive in the long run. I mean, as a as somebody who has spent many years at the bedside doing a cardiovascular ICU and diabetic management and education, I can tell you, wow, um, the cost of diet-related disease and metabolic syndrome specifically is, is trillions of dollars and, and reduced life expectancy and really diminished quality of life. And you can't put an actual financial cost on reduced quality of life and reduced lifespan. I mean, that's it's it's crazy when you think about it from that perspective. But that is the cost of cheap 
over like cheap calories over nutrient density <laughs> quality food. It's it's the wrong metrics that yep. we're using. We're, yeah. know, the metrics that 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 we measure our food system by a are you know calories, b volume. But the more again, the more we understand, the more the science has uh, evolved. Is that uh, you know th- those are actually not uh, not the drivers of of health and. You know, when we, specifically mm-hmm. when we look at the gut and the gut microbiome and its needs for fiber and phytonutrients and all these secondary compounds that are anti-inflammatory um, or may have anti-inflammatory properties mm-hmm. are what's keeping us in a state of health versus shifting into a state of disease. Um, and mm-hmm. and for me, it's you know, it's it's hard and potentially irresponsible to you know blame somebody for for that because. Uh, our society has set up those rules. These, this is the operating system in which we are, in which we again have designed from a, you know laws and norms. And uh, you know, from my perspective, the question then becomes: Well, how? You know, well, okay, I, the, I understand these are the these are the rules and the norms and the laws in which we we live by. But how do you change those rules? How do you change those norms so we are? It is mm-hmm. it is then easier. Uh, to go from a quantity-focused food system to a quality-focused food system. And so clearly there's mm-hmm. market implications of that. There's policy implications of that. There's behavior uh, implications of that as we started. Um, and so, you know, I wouldn't say moving, you know, to a meta level uh, or anything, but it's um, it's really looking at these, at, these, at these systems and looking at it from a, a perspective of, you know, where and how do we look at paradigm shifts uh, as as we look to re-envision uh, what our food system looks like? Yeah, I like that you call it like the operating system. I actually have never, I'm, I'm sure if I've heard that before, I just never really thought about it or appreciated it like I just did now because it is like with food system reform and regenerative food systems, it's like we're trying to initiate a new operating system. And as I'm sure most people are like me, when I get my update from my computer that I need to upgrade my operating system, I literally drag my feet and put it on snooze for like three weeks because I'm scared that the change is going to be hard. And so it gives me a whole new appreciation for like macro system change and and that there is reluctancy on many levels because we, you know, it's unknown a and it's going to require change on many levels and, and humans are inherently resistant to change. So You know, I think that this is a great time to talk about your work at the Croatan Institute and what you guys are doing to work on these big system pictures, because I think it's it's a it I think for a lot of people who are interested in food system change and paradigm change in this bigger, you know, holistic model of food, health, climate and economics, um, there is a huge role for organizations like Croatan Institute that are they're not in the system, like in the way that I am, like I own a brand. So I have a very different way of where I'm pushing levers in this whole system. You guys are doing something very unique and it gives you an awesome position to tell a lot of great story and to communicate a lot of great research. So I am um, just go ahead and take it away and tell us about that. Sure. So Croton Institute is a independent nonprofit research and action institute whose mission is to build social equity and ecological resilience by leveraging finance to create pathways to a just economy. 
Um, and the ways we do that are not just in food and agriculture. We have a, a very active and vibrant program on racial equity, economics, finance, and sustainability reefs. Um, we've done work uh, kind of in, in the public market space around accountability, uh, other other work around uh, kind of community and community building. Um, but the the place that I work in is is really focused kind of at this this intersection between again the social equity, ecological resilience, finance, and food systems. Um, and that's where I came, you know, to Croatin had been um, uh, had been collaborating with them for a number of years through uh, a USDA grant that I wrote on uh, that resulted in the 2019 paper on soil wealth, investing in regenerative agriculture across asset classes and came over to start work at the Institute um, uh, just over two years ago uh, in March, 2020. Um, and we've continued, you know, work, uh, work on kind of that, uh, you know, looking at soil wealth and soil wealth is a kind of a, a term of art that, uh, our, our colleagues at the Institute came up with kind of merging, uh, soil health and community wealth. And that's something that we see as kind of one of the highlights of a more regenerative agriculture approach is being able to not just talk about the soil and environmental piece, but when you talk about community wealth, um, <clears throat> it's really uh, that broader framing that is inclusive of health, is inclusive of community economic development, uh, is inclusive of many pieces, especially the, the equity-focused pieces that um, are broader than just the environmental pieces of uh, 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 that, that agriculture is usually framed by. Um, and we've continued that work with uh, mm -hmm. additional uh, grants and support and projects uh, from USDA, from private philanthropy. Um, and we've gotten, uh, we're about three quarters through another one of these conservation innovation grants that supported a lot of this work uh, to develop these soil wealth areas and soil wealth communities working right now in uh, North Carolina, Wisconsin, and uh, a bit on the West Coast as well to really look at kind of this intersection between place-based financing approaches for regenerative agriculture and bridging together new types of mechanisms, new funding sources, and ways that will kind of drive again patient, flexible, and non-extractive capital to build uh, this vision for a more regenerative agriculture. Nice. Um, yeah, you guys have a lot going on, and it's. I, I'm always um, inspired by organizations that are willing to take on such a big, a big vision because honestly, that there are so many different touch points there, and. Um, it you know just the concept of soil wealth and regenerative is considered really a new asset class kind of like it's like an emerging concept of value in our system because historically even though i mean geez i think the government i think it was the i can't remember the name of the initiative but the very first law put into place for soil conservation actually was put into place in the 20s but still the average american has never really given much thought to what the difference between dirt and soil actually is and how it is really like a, an indicator of what our, you know, vibrancy is as a species, because it is the foundation of all ecological um, systems on the planet. There have been many a civilization that has failed because they didn't take care of their soil. Um, and, mm -hmm. and we, <laughs> right. and that's not to be understated is that, uh, you mm -hmm. know, yes, there may be, new technologies and companies that think that they can make, you know, things like protein from the air, but 
Um, I think we're going to be terrestrially based uh, civilization for a while to come, and unless we don't can't figure out how to take care of that, and and we also know that it's possible with certain ways of doing agriculture that we can more rapidly rebuild soil uh, and not just take care not not just take care right. of the soil that we have, but use it you know you know be able to you know sequester water. Uh, uh, nurture biodiversity, mm -hmm. you know, uh, cycle nutrients, um, and, and really begin to think about soil yeah. really as an asset and one that we need to value and cherish and build upon. Uh, and you, and but again, you go back to mm -hmm. you know, my previous comments on you know uh, the 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 laws, the norms, the rules, and you know even from you know USDA has a concept that they refer to as T the tolerable soil loss and what is the tolerable soil loss like um you know it, it, in in many places in the u.s it, it is t is a number greater than zero that means that there's some amount of tolerable soil loss and i think from from our perspective that t is actually less than zero is that we shouldn't have there is no tolerable soil loss we should be doing everything we can to right uh, you know, protect that soil, you know, keep it where it is and keep it healthy. Mm -hmm. There's a difference also between yep. just protecting it and making sure well, that it's biologically yeah. active and alive and providing the services that it can. Right. Well, when you think about it on a global scale, like in a, in a truly, you know, wild untouched system, you know, extreme soil loss and disturbance only happens in an event of primary succession, like glaciation, massive catastrophic flooding earthquakes that expose on uncovered ground and and in agriculture we really initiate a primary succession event annually or multiple times a year which is very much in contrast to the laws of the natural world so like i agree that this whole concept of tolerable soil loss being okay outside of catastrophic events like you know, mega storms or mega floods, obviously that's going to cause a, a soil loss event. Um, you know, major, major tornado coming through that would probably rip some soil up, but, you know, having it be as a effect of just like agriculture as we're doing it does need to become an unacceptable metric in my mind. And we just had a wind event last week here. I live in the panhandle of Idaho. So we have a couple hundred miles of uh, farmlands to our west that are some parts of Washington or a lot, a lot of parts of Washington, but also parts of Idaho in our region. And we had a huge wind event that came through and I went down to Lake Coeur d'Alene and it was so hazy that it looked smoky. Like it literally looked like there was a forest fire somewhere and it was all topsoil. And so I called up my farmers in Eastern Washington. They all happen to be no-till re regen farmers. And I'm like, Hey, what do you guys think about this dust storm? And they're like, yep, there goes, literally the weight of like half of the American naval fleet in topsoil that's landing on the panhandle of Idaho right now. And just, you know, it's gone like millions of tons. It's such a scary uh, thought. Scary. Yes. But that provides us an opportunity to, you know, I think think a little bit more clearly about what kinds of systems we want to shift to. And, you know, we're doing a lot of, a lot of work in perennial mm -hmm. systems and, you know, grazing and grass fed beef and agroforestry uh, places where there are, there may be annual grains, but they're done in a way where there's a continuous living cover, always on the ground, always protecting protecting that soil, mm -hmm. always having a living root in the soil. And, you know, you look anywhere else in nature and like, where yep. is there ever bare dirt on the ground? And here in the Midwest, um, 
primary succession events. Yeah, we were events, driving around <laughs> over the weekend, and it's amazing how much you know bare topsoil you see. And yep, it rains, it wind blows, and yep. you can just kiss it goodbye. And there and it goes. We can't do that anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very <laughs> fundamental. No, we can't do that anymore. It's it's a fundamental thing when you stop and really think about it because we can't. It's not. It's easy to blow it away or have it run off into the rivers. It's very hard to get that back, and it's slow. And and I'm I'm sure you've studied the work of David, Doctor David Montgomery, but you know when he started looking at measuring even in really healthy um, regenerative systems, like what the maximum topsoil growth metric is, you realize that we literally have to stop this today. <laughs> like we can't afford to lose anymore. So, you know. Soil health is one of those things that I'm so glad that is now being associated with human health as well, because, you know, as you have seen, and you've done a lot of work into this nexus point, you know, as we lose that soil organic matter, it drives a lot of really scary, um, you know, chemical processes in soil. And, you know, I think a lot of times, again, people think about, oh, yeah, well, I need this to be rich in this nutrient and rich in this, et cetera. But what we don't talk about a lot is that unhealthy soil systems actually have really high levels of toxic heavy metals. And it's an indicator of a system that's out of balance and is not being buffered by the natural, you know, rhizospheric ecology that is needed to keep those heavy metals um, in check. So I don't know if you guys and your team have done any looking into that, but I know Whiteleaf Provisions is a CPG company that's been focused on baby food. And regenerative baby food, because what they're finding is that the majority of foods on the market marketed for infants actually had toxic heavy metal levels. And I didn't prompt you on this question, but it just dawned on me. Like, I would love to explore this for a second. There's a lot of there's a lot of compounds or chemicals that I think we want in our food. And I think we're beginning to learn more and more about those. And there's also the classification of compounds and Mm -hmm. chemicals that we don't want in our food. And in some cases, uh, you know, yeah. you either have the soil biology uh, that is going to allow you to uh, accumulate the things that we either want or don't want. And, you know, and I know there's been a lot of work both in the U.S. and elsewhere on rice and arsenic. Um, and sometimes, it, you know, that, you know, we do have mm-hmm. geologic formations where um, it's, you know, there is more arsenic, even nat- more naturally in the system. Uh, but in other cases, you know, we've been spraying and tilling and adding amendments that have, you know, whether it's heavy metals or or pesticides or other compounds in them that eventually go through the roots into the plant and into the, you know, part of the plant uh, or into an animal that we eventually eat. Um, and, you know, from a regulatory perspective, how much mm-hmm. of that is being monitored, how much of that is being uh, kind of communicated to consumers and what these thresholds are and how does that relate back to the farming systems that that are ongoing is um, it's it's a place that I think needs a, a lot more attention and we get kind of whether it's consumer complaints or we start getting sick sick people whether it's sick babies or sick adults that mm-hmm. sure really matters but we we know that's gone too far at that point yeah yeah and I think that that's something that actually is meaningful to consumers like. Like you said um, earlier, when you look at what motivates humans, like I think it's really tough for most people to get motivated about the environment. It's sad, but it's true. Um, getting people excited about soil health or 
nematodes, worms. Like, I mean, it's just not something that the average person's like, oh, cool, nematodes. But, you know, when you start talking about heavy metals in your children, like that's something that the vast majority of Americans could go, wait, what? Like, I need to hear more about that because, you know, we've already done initiatives to limit lead exposure in old homes through paint. You know, it's something that we're already habituated to. Um, being sensitive to and being aware of as a public from a public health perspective. So sometimes I wonder if maybe we need a food babe <laughs> um, to come in and start going, hey, let's really draw attention to this angle of, um, you know, that there is potential harm because of things that are starting to emerge. And I think a lot of that data has been very intentionally suppressed. Like it's not or out there as done. much as you or think. Or you look at kind of, you know, whether it's uh, government funding mm-hmm. cycles or structures or even work that's done by uh, EPA or USDA or, or other or FDA or other federal agencies is that you know they're they they just haven't looked at some of these pieces that I think we deem as important important for public health and envi- important for environmental safety, uh, but have either been off the radar or have been kind of purposely put off the radar. Um, and and I think that I think it's mm-hmm. it's now too, I wouldn't say it's too late, but it is. It is the right time to begin to look at all the things that we know that we don't know, and mm-hmm. but yet, you know, begin to look at the the patterns of disease, the patterns of 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 how we're treating our 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 land and our food system, and I think we begin to more, we will begin to more easily mm-hmm. trace back that stewardship, that management that we're doing now, and you know, hopefully, be able to identify mm-hmm. uh, how to reduce the burden to do agriculture in a way that reduces the burden on, again, both people and the environment. Yeah, because I was at an agronomy um, conference a while back and there was an entire segment on this accumulation of heavy metals and how it actually is directly correlated to, um, especially anhydrous um, um, nitrogen products, like chemical synthetic nitrogen products are one of the drivers of this kind of imbalance in the chemistry of the soil. And it was fascinating because I am a nurse. I'm not an agronomist, although I did spend a couple of years as, as a soil scientist, but I was just a grunt in a soil lab. But, you know, I was thinking about it more through a nurse's lens where I was like, okay, I'm basically interpreting like my patient's labs here and the vital signs and looking at these systems out of balance and then thinking about how that ultimately does make an impact on human health and how little we're thinking about it outside of the agronomy world, <laughs> you know, where I was sitting there with a bunch of farmers and they're like, oh yeah, well, we need to do this. And here's how we're going to respond in our farming system to help limit this problem. But I was the only healthcare person in the room. And um, it struck me as how significant that was that I was the only healthcare person in the world room. And so I was like, oh my goodness, there are other people um, in healthcare that really should be hearing this message and thinking about how that's impacting food and how healthcare ultimately and health needs of the human population can start to drive changes in practice on the agricultural side, which takes us to like farm bill next year and how we've been talking about where is the conversation around health, health impact, healthcare spending. Yeah, I think it's, it's a great point. And something that we're just getting started to work on as well is, you know, we look at con- constituents who have been active in previous farm bills, uh, farm bill cycles and other other policies as it relates to agriculture as well. And I think that, you know, over the last few years, there have been an increasing number of reports that have used, you know, methodologies like true cost accounting 
that begin to look again at the food system, both either, you know, either globally or, or domestically, and are beginning to assign where some of these impacts fall. And you're able to see differences in, you know, impacts of the food system fall, you know, com, uh, uh, fall in uh, health related or environment or economic. And overwhelmingly, these the impacts of the food system uh, fall on health and health impacts. And so that's where it, it created a, an, mm-hmm. an interesting question of, well, how are health, you know, health care, public health practitioners engaging in policy discussions like the farm bill how do we um how do we bring those populations mm-hmm. in those those uh constituents who at the end of the day they're the ones who have to you know they have to receive and in many cases fix or try to fix the problems that our our food system um has kind of pushed over to their side of the court um uh, and from my perspective it, it's it's going to be easier right. to right. keep people healthy than to bring them back to health once they've gone to a place of sickness or disease. And, and that's where I think that, that our, our food system has oh, a role absolutely. to play in that. But it's going to take, again, it's going to take policy and markets, behavior, all of these different pieces. Uh, but I think that getting the, 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 the medical and the mm-hmm. health communities engaged around public policy and agriculture is going to be a critical step to, to, to uh, speeding that transition up. Yeah. And just the role of these huge corporations that really dominate our food and agricultural landscape. I mean, many are almost monopolistic in a way. Um, I mean, I'm sure the Sherman Antitrust Act has like looked at them a time or two because it's like they're so involved in so many sectors. And it's always a little odd when you have the same company putting and, and doing all the education on the farming side and lobbying for certain agricultural practices but they're also the ones that are making profit on the medications that are being used to treat diet-related disease. So it, it does make for an interesting situation that I think most Americans need to step back and consider and really think about how that how their consumer purchasing plays a role in supporting these huge companies that literally keep the operating system in place that is causing yeah, us and, to be and that's sick where and I think that, to be sick as well. Know, or similarly to the example I gave before that, you know, the laws and the norms that we're working by have given us the rule book that we play by today and it's i think it's the same thing goes for the late stage capitalism that is dominant uh, you know in the us and and across the world and um if if it means that a dollar out of mm-hmm. your pocketbook to go to uh you know a company that is profiting from you getting sick is a narrative that i think we're not hearing and we're not exploring enough and uh, having somebody else profit yeah. off of anybody, a yeah. community, an individual, a community, a country, you know, getting sick is not something that I think, you know, should be acceptable in uh, mm-hmm. what comes next after this this next stage of, again, this late stage capitalism. And, you know, we're following closely some of the work to, uh, being led by Omidyar yeah. uh, and others who are trying to reimagine capitalism and look at it in a way that, you know, doesn't just prioritize uh, shareholder returns but how do we again create this this rule book this playbook um where we can you know it's not to say that nobody should be making a profit but how do we do it without putting a burden on somebody else's back right right yeah because i mean capitalism when it comes to like hey you build something and you're rewarded there's a profit there that that makes a ton of sense i think people who do hard work should be rewarded 
but we shouldn't ever reward people for doing something damaging that costs other people like their their life, their health or their environment. So it's got to be, you know, taken into that consideration. Now, speaking of opportunities and business and profitability, there are some really interesting things that are emerging in regenerative. And I just love for a second for you to tell our listeners about um, the projects that you guys are working on with your Market Square, Bionutrient Food Association, Regen Food Platform. It's it's a whole kind of a, a evolving, emerging business opportunity that um, we're seeing pop up all over the place. And I know you guys are involved in something. Sure. So please um, tell our listeners a little bit about that. Sure. So again, I, I mentioned some of our soil wealth uh, work was uh, has been funded by the USDA's Conservation Innovation Grant Program. Uh, we were successful in another uh, grant application uh, to that program last year. Uh, and were awarded um, about seven hundred thousand uh, dollars to create this new marketplace uh, that is going to reward farmers for the multiple benefits of regenerative agriculture. And as you mentioned, we're working with uh, Nourish to the Nth Degree, Bionutrient Food Association, and Market Square uh, to create this new platform that will, I think, start as a kind of B two B. So don't look at it, you know, uh, immediately from a from a consumer facing perspective. But the idea uh, behind this that uh, our colleagues at Market Square are, um, are are really driving, you know, a lot of this innovation around is is that we we realize that especially coming out of regenerative agricultural systems that many of these products are differentiated in many ways uh, from a nutritional perspective from an environmental perspective from a uh, social and equity perspective and these kind of the, the the attributes of these foods aren't really clearly articulated in the market especially as it relates to price um, and so what mm-hmm. Market Square is doing and what we're helping to support them on, you know, with this project is how do we create, um, how do we create a way for buyers and sellers to be able to communicate and to do price discovery based on the attributes of these, of these, uh, of these products coming into the market. Um, and so we're going to be doing, you know, mm-hmm. with our, our colleagues at Bionutrient Food Association, we're going to be testing uh, using their laboratories, some of the nutritional characteristics of some of the foods, uh, working with uh, some farmers, working with uh, you know some of these buyers. They may be healthcare systems, they may be corporate campuses, mm-hmm. uh, they may be kind of uh, uh, retail uh, retail establishments, uh, and to really begin to have that conversation about what these what are these attributes, what attributes of food are important to to the buyers and eventually to, to the end consumer. And what does that mean from a value perspective? Um, and how do we value those better? And yeah. how do we communicate that uh, as it re- uh, again going upstream? You know, back to what are the health outcomes? What are the environmental outcomes? And you know, can we eventually get to a place where you know we know that the the higher quality food will eventually be less expensive? Um, but uh, we have to make sure that the 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 macroeconomics right, around right. that. Right, right. That's uh, a it's are, such are a cool project. Well. I I am glad you guys are working on that because. Um, like my company, Snacktivist, is working with Bionutrient Food Association as well on identifying, you know, chemical profiles on some of our crops that are unusual and not routinely consumed in the United States. They're ancient grains that are typically, you know, grown for other uses, but not for human consumption, which is silly because when you do look at their phytonutrient profile, it is like really impactful from a nutrient perspective, but also from like a secondary tertiary phytochemical impact, um, you know, from antioxidants to anti-diabetic compounds to all kinds of really cool things. And 
we've got to start um, documenting the presence of these and communicating that to the customers so that they understand that food really can be medicine. And if we're going to um, if we're going to take on that narrative, we do need to have data behind it to show some consistencies and to show that there is a science behind that process rather than just a false claim. So um, we'll have to follow up and talk some more about that project because um, we're going to get Dan on here in the next few weeks as well to talk about Bionutrient Food Association and the work that they're doing because he keeps consistently coming up in um, podcast after podcast. So <laughs> Dan, you're Dan's next, great. I tell you. So um, <laughs> I know, yeah, it's really, it's a cool project. So, you know, just to wrap things up, um, I'd love for you to take a second and tell us a little bit about in everything that you're doing. And, you know, sometimes it does get a little overwhelming with the doom and gloom, like it, when you work in the planet saving world and health nexus, planet food nexus space, it, it's sometimes overwhelming and can be somewhat discouraging because you're just in the trenches. What are the things that really give you hope every day and what's making you feel hopeful about the future? Uh, for me, it's really being able to spend time with the innovators, the entrepreneurs, especially the farmers who are out there who even given the the rule book that we have today are are trying to break out of that. And I see mm -hmm. that that community, you included, um, are are at the forefront of kind of designing, you know, this the, the this next world that we're going to live in, um, and even as much you know pressure is to keep us in this the state of today, um, I see so much activity and interest and progress to kind of designing this next operating system, and I think that's really mm -hmm. what keeps me going is that um, you know it's it's a small but mighty team. Uh, you know, <laughs> that is working on this from a connected and also disconnected way is that we see, um, we see really just so much, uh, from across generations, from across, uh, geographies, from across, uh, you know, s s uh, different, different groups that we, that we're in touch with is that mm -hmm. we're, we're always, we're always working with those change makers. We're working with the innovators and, um, you know, a lot of the work that we do is listening, connecting, um, and, and helping to really advance some of these, uh, some of these, you know, really impactful solutions. Cool. Yeah. I agree with you hundred percent. Um, the community that we get to work with every day is definitely one of the reasons I show up every day, even when I'm really, really tired and kind of you know, just like suffering under the burden of it. So um, thank you for doing the work that you do. It is fantastic and contributing a lot to this movement. And I'm just so glad you took the time out of your day to tell us about it. Yeah, it was my pleasure. And and again, it wouldn't be for, for you and your community and folks like you who are really breaking out of the mold of uh, th that, we're, that we're in right now and trying to envision and bring forward not just a new food system, but really this this broader vision of those who are connecting food and health. And I think that's why we we connected, uh, you know, a while ago that we both have mm -hmm. we and I think this community is growing who sees that yes. we can't just have siloed systems around food and health is that they're really part of the the same system that we really need to do a better job of, of managing yep. together as opposed to separately. Absolutely. Well, on that note, thank you so much. And um, for, to all of you listeners, thank you for listening today. And
please take a moment to like, leave your review, share with your friends. And, you know, we're building a really fantastic community here on Regenerative by Design. So if there's somebody you'd like to see on the show, please uh, reach out and send it my way because this is all about creating a platform where people who are making this dream come true and creating the future we want to see a reality, we want to give them a place to talk about their work. So thank you for joining. Bye. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. If you would like to learn more about the principles of regenerative food systems and agriculture, please see the show notes for links to education, a glossary, and guest information. This podcast was brought to you by Snacktivist Inc., a leader in the regenerative food industry. We create delicious foods from regenerative ingredients that are soil-focused, minimize water use, and maximize carbon sequestration, all while radically impacting human nutrition. Learn more about our work at snacktivistfoods.com.